0: All right, good morning, everyone. So, first of all, welcome to this new series. Bar Hashem, it's wonderful. A lot of the wonderful to have everyone back. I give some of the women here a lot of credit because a number of you were here last night. Bar Hashem for this year, now here again this morning. So, this is our um, opportunity to really launch a new series, a monthly series on the topic of tefillah, a topic of prayer. And I have to give a thank you to Shani Tapper, our incredible executive director, because uh, this was her idea—the the the topic and the and the series. And what I'd like to try to accomplish over the course Emirat Hashem over the next couple of months is to really take a deeper look into the concept of Tefillah, what it is that we're trying to accomplish, what it is that we're trying to do, and what. The entire essence of prayer truly is because it feels one of these interesting things being that we do it all the time and we do it so frequently, like anything else in life that you do with any degree of regularity, often it becomes rote. And amazingly enough, you would think that the more you do something, the more you understand it and appreciate it. Yet sometimes it's just the opposite. The more I do something, the kind of the more ragil, just regular it becomes, and the less impactful and meaningful it is. So our goal really over the course of this series is to be able to look at the concept of tefillah, but both through the prism of halacha as well as through hashgafa. So to be able to appreciate it, and again, what I'm going to try to do over the course of the year is also really focus a little bit to our source sheets if anyone needs up front over here on the front table. So what I, and what I hope to really be able to focus on a little bit is some of the halachos of tefillah specifically as they pertain to women. And again kind of draw, bless you, draw those halachos into some of the hashkafa of tefillah as well. So let's begin. So today I'm going to use really as an opportunity to build a little bit of a framework of tefillah. So if you take a look at number one, so the Torah says, A pasuk with which we are incredibly familiar with, a pasuk from Kriyashma. And the Torah says, If you will listen to my mitzvahs that I am commanding you today, to love Hashem, to serve Him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. So interestingly enough, the Gemara struggles to understand what does it mean to serve Hashem with all of your heart. You see, all of my soul, I understand. What does it mean to serve Hashem with all of your soul? What would you think? A willingness to give your life. Right? With all of your soul means a willingness to give of my entirety, my life, to HaKadosh Baruch that if chas v'shalom, I am called upon to give my life for the ribon of Odam, I stand ready to do so. I stand ready to do so. Interestingly enough, you know, what Feser Yerba Salavichik points out, he says that we often speak about, when we speak about Kiddush Hashem, there's the sheets right right up here for me. When we speak about Kiddush Hashem, give me a favor, maybe just take a few to the back, thank you. So when we speak about Kiddush Hashem, Often, the reference is to dying al Hashem. Rabbi Solveitchik points out, dying al Hashem is easy. Why? You only have to do it once. <laughs> Living al-Kedush Hashem is a much greater challenge because that has to be done each and every day. But what does it mean to serve Hashem with all of my heart? So all of my soul, I understand, the Gemara says, Even if Hashem is ready to take my life, I have to stand ready to give my life to the Reba Olam. But what does it mean to serve Hashem with all of my heart? And here the Gemara says, we actually just started this. We just started in Sechistinus in Dafyomi just a few days ago. And this is one of the first Gemara's In number two. To love Hashem and to serve Him with all of my heart, how do you serve God with your heart? So what's serving Hashem with your heart? Prayer. Prayer, the concept of, so this is incredible just so you understand how Chazal understand the concept of prayer in its most basic essence. Tefillah means to serve the Rebono shel Olam with my heart, which tells you something amazing, that from a from a Gemara perspective, the most important and impactful part of filah is not what you say, but rather it's what how you feel, how you feel. Which now, again, you know, part of the interesting thing about Yiddishkeit is, and this you find this in all areas, there is often this this meeting point between what we'll call the essence of halacha. And the mechanistic details of halacha. And our job is to marry both of them together. Because sometimes you look at the mechanistic details and you don't always see the spirit. And in the spirit, you don't always see the mechanistic details. So this is, this is, this is a little bit of the hybrid model that we have to create in everything in our Yiddish guy. Same thing with Shabbos. You know, how many times does it happen that maybe you've thought this or you've heard someone else say this? Does God really care if I turn on a light on Shabbos? Right, really? The Rebelshom is running the world, running the world. And he's standing there, look, if I go like this, I go like that, I go like this, I go like that, go like, that go like this, go like this. Like this. So, so the answer is Does the Chesh Hu care? I don't know if the Chesh Hu cares or not. But the Shulchan says, You're not allowed to do it, right? So, meaning, there's this marriage often between the spirit of the law, what the Neshama of the halacha is, and the mechanistic details. So, the reason this is very important is because we're starting out with the Neshama of Tefillah. What is the essence of the prayer experience? Chazal call it avoda Shebalev. It is a service. It is a service of the heart. And again, learned from the pasuk Ula Avdo bichal levavichem to serve Hashem with all of your heart. How do you serve God with your heart? Prayer. Now, let's understand. Whenever we, we're going to start really through the prism of halacha today, whenever we look at a particular issue in halacha, the first question we have to ask ourselves is. Get a little bit of halachic analysis. First question. Whenever you deal with a particular mitzvah, what's the first question? Such a modest group. Okay, incredible. Is it the Oreyse or the Rabbanon? Is it biblical or rabbinic? Because whether or not something is biblical or rabbinic frames the rest of the halacha. By the way, especially for women, especially for women, whether something is biblical or rabbinic has many ramifications. In fact, interestingly enough, one of the most fascinating distinctions over here is between Svardim and Ashkenazim, whether or not women make brachos over mitzvos A point of contention between Ashkenazim and Svardim. Again, we'll, we'll get to all of these things, but to know is something biblical or is something rabbinic. So at first glance, what would you say? Is Tfila biblical or rabbinic? Okay. Rabbinic. Rabbinic, why? Okay, so you're looking at the Siddur. You're looking at remember we haven't gotten to the Siddur yet. We're talking just about the concept of prayer. Is the concept of prayer, biblical or rabbinic. Biblical. biblical why? Because our fathers did it. Good. You're thinking too much, by the way. Right? <laughs> why would it be biblical? Where, where did it just? Where, where did we just derive the concept of prayer from? A a Pasek. It's a Pasek in the Torah. You have to serve Hashem with all of your heart. The Gemara says, what does that mean to serve Hashem with all of your heart? That's prayer. Now, l- let me go back to something that was just mentioned. This idea that the Avos Davin, Avram Yitzchak Yaakov, Avram da- Davin Shachris, Yitzchak Mincha, Yaakov Mar- So, of course, first of all, you know that, of course, that's not literal, right? Avram Avinu didn't open up the Siddur and start Davin and Shachris, and Yitzchak didn't start to the Ashray and Davin Mincha, and Yaakov didn't say Vahurachum and then begin with Myriv. That's not what happened. They each prayed in the morning. Sorry, Avram prayed in the morning, Yitzchak in the afternoon, Yaakov in the evening. In fact, if Hirsch brings down, interestingly enough, that actually all three of us daven three times a day. Avram daven what we'll call Shachras min Chemairev, Yitzchak Shachras min Chemairev, Yaakov Shachras min Chemairev. So why is each Av associated with one tefillah? Because that's reflective of their personalistic mission. Avram Avinu, Avram Avinu lived, or he, he, what he was, was the dawn of monotheism. That's why he is most closely associated with Shahris. Yaakov Avinu, I'm going to skip Yitzchak for just a second. Yaakov Avinu, Davin's Meiriv. Meiriv is davin when? When is when is Davin'd? At night. Nighttime represents uncertainty, difficulty, tragedy. Very much characterizes Yaakov Avinu's life. Yaakov has a dramatically turbulent life. Yaakov teaches us how to Davin and how to connect to Yaakov Baruch Hu even at night. And Yitzchak? Yitzchak Avin's Mincha. Because what was Yitzchak Avinu? He was the bridge. He was the big, bridge patriarch. His job was to take the foundation of his father, build up upon it, so that his son could create exponential growth. That's Mincha, the bridge tefillah. Just as an aside, I'll just also mention something very important, which is, we will see, when it, we're going to get into now the halacha, is tefillah de'oraysa or de'rabanon? Is it biblical, is it rabbinic? The discussion regarding patriarchal prayer does not come into play. And the reason it doesn't is as follows. There is a principle in the Yerushalmi, Jerusalem Talmud, of Ein L'meidin Davar Mikode Matan Torah. We do not learn any binding halacha from anything that occurred before Sinaitic Revelation. So all of the stories in Bereshis, right, all the stories in Bereshis and even being a Shmos, None of it creates binding halachic obligations. The perfect example of this is, where do we learn the mitzvah of bris milah from? Circumcision. Where do we learn it from? What's your reflexive answer? Now you're afraid to say What's your reflexive Avram. Good. Except that's not true. Meaning Avram Avinu was the first person to do a bris milah. But the mitzvah of milah is actually brought down in Chumash VaYigra. In, in in Parsha Sazria, right after the Torah speaks out the laws of childbirth, the Torah speaks out. Hashmini imal On the eighth day, you circumcise a baby boy. Why is that restated? Why is it restated? Because again, we have this principle, and it's, very, it's actually incredibly important halachically. We don't learn any binding generational halacha. From anything that occurred before Harsina, anything that occurred before Senate Revelation. Actually, interesting. A fascinating question on that topic actually comes up in this week's parashah. Because what's in this week's parashah? Gid Hanosha. That you're not allowed to eat the sciatic nerve. So interestingly enough, it doesn't appear that that prohibition is mentioned again in the Torah. It seems to be an exclusion to this rule. But again, we'll leave that on the side. So, so now, focusing back a little bit. Is it biblical or rabbinic? Well, so comes the Rambam in number three. And the Rambam says, It is a biblical mitzvah to daven each and every day. And he quotes the Gemara. So interestingly, the Rambam says, the, the concept of prayer is a biblical obligation. But look what the Rambam says at the end of number three. So the Rambam paskins that there is a biblical obligation to pray. But according to the Rambam, how do you satisfy that biblical obligation? Tefillah as we have it today, right? In the Siddur, codified, the fact that there's a time for davening, the number of times you have to daven, none of that is biblical. So the Rambam adopts this interesting position, that the concept of tefillah is biblical. But how do you fulfill biblical prayer? How do you fulfill it? You speak to Hashem, whatever you want to say. Thank you, Hashem. I'm in need, Hashem. HaKadosh Baruch help me with this. Please deliver me from that. You fulfill the biblical obligation of prayer through simple dialogue. Through simple dialogue, that's it. And when, when do you fulfill this simple dialogue? When do you fulfill it? When? Whenever you want. How often do you fulfill it? As frequently as you'd like. So the Rambam adapts this incredible incredibly, incredible idea. Tefillah in its essence, Avodah Shebalev, what we'll call a dialogical connection with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. A need to speak to God is a biblical obligation. But the only thing that's biblical is the actual dialogue. How you want a dialogue, when you want a dialogue, what you want the substance of the dialogue to be about, that's up to you. That's up to you. So when did it happen that we developed the Siddur? So we're going to talk about this more, but I'll just show you this very quickly. Look at the Rambam in number four writes, Shegoli, Miss Arvu beparas, umos, Banim hagoyim. So listen to this. Says the Raman, then something amazing happened. Something not amazing, dramatically tragic happened. Jewish people were exiled. We were exiled by Nebuchadnezzar, right, who was the king of Babel, right, the head of the Babylonian Empire, who was responsible ultimately for the destruction of the first base Hamikdash. So there's a massive wave of exiles, right? It first starts with the exile of the 10 tribes, and then ultimately, again, the remaining tribes as well afterwards. So what happens? There's exile. Now what happened during exile? So ultimately, people resettle. They restart new lives. They have families. They have children. And what happens? Here's what was fascinating. You had children born in a diaspora that did not have a mastery of language. You see, this is incredible. What happened? The children born in the diaspora were born to whom? We'll call them immigrant parents. (laughs) Immigrant parents. So that was immigrant parents. Again, we still know because many of us have have immigrant parents. Had immigrant parents, right? They never fully like master the, the new language, right? So there's a lot of sprinkling of a lot of different things, a lot of mispronunciations. So you have children born in the diaspora, without mastery of a particular language. So what happened? So people, so children born in the diaspora, they didn't master any one language. So at home, at home, parents were probably speaking Hebrew, right? Out, wherever they were, people were speaking all different dialects. So listen to what the Rambam says. This is absolutely incredible. The Rambam says, children born in the diaspora did not have mastery over any one language. What happens when you don't have mastery over any one language? What happens? What happens? Dialogue becomes frustrating. Dialogue, right? You ever see a young child who's beginning to speak? And they say something to the parent, right? And the parent says, I don't, I don't know what you're saying, right? And the child becomes so frustrated because the child thinks that they're expressing themselves in a totally, in a totally coherent fashion. Parent, children born on diaspora were unable to go. So often, what happens, by the way, if the parent can't have it, what does the child do? The child just gives up. So the Rambam describes something amazing. The Rambam says that children born on diaspora did not have mastery over a language and therefore were unable to fully express themselves. Because they were unable to fully express themselves, prayer became a frustrating experience. Now remember, which prayer are we talking about? So the Rambam is referring over to biblical prayer. And what was biblical prayer? What was biblical prayer? Whatever you want, whenever you want, about whatever you want, how off, how off. But, they could, but that requires the ability of self-expression. That requires the ability to articulate To articulate, to be able to go ahead and actually say words and actually express yourself. So that I'm describing over here, the generation born in the diaspora were unable to fully express themselves. As a result, dialogue with God became a frustrating experience. So what happens when people become frustrated? What happens when people become frustrated? What happens? They They stop happening. But I just want to tell you something. This is, bless you, this is so incredibly important. You know, people today, right? It's interesting to see if you speak to a lot of parents, especially young children, often tefillah is a struggle, right? I don't mean for the parents, I mean for the kids, right? Hard to get kids to Davin. I want to tell you a little secret. We have to do a better job in our schools and in our homes of teaching Kriya. Of teaching Kriya. Do you know how many beautiful neshamas there are of boys and girls? who go through schools, yeshivas, day schools, and they can't read Hebrew appropriately. They can't read. They're they're, they're breaking their teeth over a pasuk in chumish. They're breaking their teeth over a section in the Siddur. And then we wonder why our children don't like davening. Again, it's nothing new. It's the Rambam. Hulchos Tfilah, Perak Aleph, Halach Adalid. If it doesn't flow off your tongue, it just becomes a frustrating experience. And if it, because, you see, adults, a lot of times, especially if somebody comes to Yiddish a little bit later, and so maybe they don't have a mastery over language, see, adults are more motivated. Because even if I can't read the Hebrew, I can read the English, and I'm motivated to daven. But for children, the Klaugodl is anything that is too difficult or too frustrating. They're simply going to give up on it. And I can't tell you. And by the way, this is, this is so true in everything. It's true for learning also. If you can't really read a Pasuk and Chumash, you're not really going to be motivated to go ahead and look at Rashi or to go ahead and learn. And it's incredible because too often we kind of push kids through a system and it only becomes apparent in middle school. Again, and I, I see this all the time and it's heartbreaking. It becomes apparent in middle school A kid can't read. I I don't don't mean learning differences. I mean just a kid can, sometimes it is learning differences also. A kid can't read Lashon Hakodesh. So how do I want them to enjoy davening? How do I want them to enjoy learning? So again, I just want to point out, this is historically what happened to our people. People couldn't express themselves. They stopped davening. And by the way, this is the good old days when what was davening? What was davening? 20 seconds, you're in and out, right? Some people would love this today, right? right? So, so 20 seconds. Thank you, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. That's it. And then done, done, done. That was it. That was all tefillah had to be. But yet the inability to express myself in a comprehensive, coherent fashion caused people simply to give up. To just give up. So what happened? If you look at number four, I'm now one, two, three, four, five, six lines down. Kevan Shira Ezra Ubeis Dino. When Ezra and his Beis remember again, Ezra and his Beis in also known as Anche Kinesis Hagidola, Men of the Great Assembly, which was the, the highest rabbinic body during the times in the destruction of the first base Hamikdash, into the second temple era. Ezra and his Beis in decided, Amduvatiknulan Shmona Esrei Brachos Al Hasader So organized prayer as we have it today, what we call Shmona Esrei. We're going to see, by the way, that the Siddur as we have it was built out in stages. It wasn't all created at once. The first actual rabbinic tefillah creation was Shmon Asrei. That was the first thing Shmon Asrei. I don't, Shema, of course, is different because Sh'ma is three paragraphs from the Torah. But remember, again, those paragraphs do not, do not occur consecutively in the Torah, right? It was the rabbis who linked those paragraphs together for prayer. So the first innovation, the first in prayer innovation by the Rabbanim was Shmona Esrei. And Ezra is based on the side of, let's create Shmona Esrei. This way, everyone has an organized text from which to pray, The hope being, the hope being that it will avoid frustration. People know what they have to do. They can practice one text. That text, Shemona Esrei, is a catch-all. Right? There's nothing that you could possibly want that's not included in Shmona Esrei. And even if it's not somehow included in Shmona Esrei, Kolinu is a catch-all for everything. And then the Rambam Rambam goes on to explain the structure. So again, this is the Rambam. So the fascinating Rambam, I'll give much more to say on this, but for our purposes, now we'll move on. So the Rambam says, therefore, in its essence, prayer is biblical. But biblical prayer is only just a straight dialogue with God. However, whenever And whatever you want, when did everything change? And I want to point out, the Rambam says, that's the optimal way to pray, right? What's very important that the Rambam is teaching us is, the purest form of prayer is unstructured, spontaneous dialogue. That's the best way to pray, that's the best way to pray, right? It, it, it would be no different. It's like if you give someone a card, let's say you give someone you love a card, a birthday an anniversary, uh, whatever, whatever it might be. And remember, if you just give them the card and it has the message and you don't personalize it, most people will say, wow, that's a pretty... That's, that's, that's a lack of sensitivity. I mean, Hallmark is great. Don't get me wrong. Right? But at the end of the day, unless you make it yours, right? Even if you just write Dear So-and-So, Love So-and-So, it's just someone else's card. Prayer in its essence really is not supposed to be scripted. It's right? Tefillah in its essence is not supposed to come from a book. Tefillah in its essence is supposed to come from my heart. So that's why it's called It's, it's called, Avodah Sheba Leif. I'm just supposed to Davantua Kaddish Baruch Hu when I want, for what I want, and how I want. But there was an existential crisis The concept of prayer was about to disappear because people were no longer confident enough in their ability to express themselves. At that moment, Chazal step in and they organize Shemona Esrei. Now, this is the position of the Rambam. The Ramban, I didn't include it on the sheet, but the Ramban Nachmanides disagrees. And he says, prayer is not biblical. Prayer is not biblical. In fact, he says, there is one form of biblical prayer, but that is only Be'ez Tzorah. Only in times of difficulty or only in times of danger is there an obligation, a biblical obligation to reach out to God. But day-to-day dialogue is not a biblical obligation. Rather, it is only a rabbinic obligation. So this, this machlokas, Rambam and the Ramban. And again, I what does the Ramban do with the Gemara in number two? Based on the Pasuk in number one, he says this is called an Asmachta. Asmachta means that sometimes the rabbis legislate laws and they find a biblical allusion to their law. But again, the Pasuk is not really coming to teach me this idea. It's just, it's an allusion to it. So fundamental dispute between the Rambam and the Ramban about the nature of, of tefillah. And again, we'll see this machlok has come up all the time on, on many different halachic issues. And again, just let me, we'll, we'll see all of this, but what I want to point out is as follows. What does everyone agree with? Everyone, agree, everyone agrees that the way we daven today, right, a structured prayer, a structured prayer with different filos for the morning, the afternoon, the evening, that framework is rabbinic. That framework is rabbinic. But the Rambam is very important to hold into, in, on your back, in your back pocket. Why? Because, again, what the Ramam does tell us is that one could fulfill biblical prayer simply through what? Spontaneous dialogue. You know, they say about the Chafetz Chaim. Chafetz Chaim said he never saw his mother, Davin. Never saw his mother, Davin. He said, I'm sure she Davin. I'm sure she Davin. But he never saw his mother Davin. Now, I'm sure she Davin also. But what you begin to see is biblical prayer, according to the Ramam at least, it's just a spontaneous dialogue. It does not require, it does not require a siddur, and it does not require structured prayer, and it does not require, again, Shmona here, three times a day, a spontaneous dialogue. So that's our halachic framework that we're going to be operating from over the next couple of months in Mirza What I want to draw your attention to, kind of just by setting the table, is it's interesting when we look at the biblical examples of tefillah, what type of examples we find? So, first of all, a dramatic one is found in this week's parasha, number five, right? Remember again, parashas Vayishlach, Yaakov Avinu is preparing for the encounter with Esav, and he davens to Hashem, and what does he say to Hashem? Miyad ochi miyad Esau, Yaakov Avinu reached that. save me from Esav, save me from Esav. So, what type of tefillah is Yaakov davening? What type of tefila, right? Angst, anxiety, danger, we'll call it a deliverance prayer. I am in difficult situation, I need you at Kaddish Baruch Hu to come through for me. Which, by the way, we're going to see a number of examples like this. This is what bolsters the Ramban's approach. That he says, really, the only obligation to pray is when you're in danger. You could always talk to God whenever you want, but there's not necessarily an obligation. Another example, number six. Number six, another example of prayer. Right, davin to save Sdom. He hears that Sdom is going to be destroyed, and ultimately he says, you're going to wipe out the righteous with the wicked, and then he begins his bargaining. Number seven, to for his wife for Rivka Imenu. So what do you begin to see? You begin to see a pattern that almost all biblical examples of prayer are in what situation? What situation? We're dire, dire, right? Dire. Where either people need something, they need something, or there's danger. So, so either again, there's a need or there's a danger. What don't we see in biblical prayer? Spontaneous dialogue for the sake of dialogue. Now again, I want to be clear. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. right? Remember, the Torah is not a storybook. It also doesn't tell us what Avraham Avinu ate for breakfast, but I'm sure he ate breakfast, right? So in other words, the Torah is not a storybook. So not every single detail is included. What's included are the details we need to know. But it is fascinating to see that the primary examples of tefillah are all when people need things. And in fact, the most dramatic example of tefillah which actually serves as the paradigm for modern-day prayer, from which Chazal crafted modern-day prayer, of course, is number eight, the Tefillah of Chana. The Tefillah of Chana. So the Tefillah of Chana, and again, we're, we're going to spend a lot of time in the coming months, probably should do this more than once a month, but okay, we're going to spend time over the coming years, Zimir Tzah you know, focusing on Tefillah of I will tell you, I've mentioned this before in a different context, you know, everybody has their most moving Eretz Yisrael moments. So I remember a number of years ago, um, when when, uh, Aviv and I were with our family, we went to Shiloh. You know, people often don't go to Shiloh, but Shiloh is an incredible place to visit. It's the site of the Mishkan. The Mishkan was there for over 400 years, and they literally know exactly where the Mishkan was. So you, you could stand in the site of the Mishkan. Amazingly enough, in the areas around Shiloh, you could still find pottery shards, dating back to the times of the Mishkan. Why are you finding pottery shards? Because when people would come to the Mishkan to offer up their karbanos, so what would happen? You would offer your karban. The alokha by Shiloh was you had to eat your sacrificial meat within, within, uh, within sight, within vision of, of the Mishkan. Well, if you notice how Shiloh, if you've ever been to Shiloh, the Mishkan is perched on a hill, on a hilltop, and there's a whole bunch of hills surrounding it. So people would offer their karbanos, take their sacrificial meat and sit with their families on the hilltop surrounding. So what would people often eat their carbonic meat in? Earthenware. Earthenware. The problem with earthenware is it cannot be kashered. Therefore, once an earthenware vessel absorbed sacrificial meat absorptions, there was nothing to do with it anymore. So what would people do with their earthenware vessels when they were leaving Shiloh? they break them. So literally to this day, you can go, and you could find pottery shards. I took a bunch of them. I hope that's legal, but but uh, you know, but you can right. You you can literally find pottery shards dating back to the times of the Mishkan. Incredible. But the most moving part was, right by the area of the Mishkan, they have on a beautiful screen there are written Tefillah Shana. the of Chana. And I remember then my I don't know what, I don't think my boys were with us then, but my my wife and my daughters dive in there, and to see to see a Jewish woman and daughters. Davening at the site, literally the very site that Hannah said her tefillah, her tefillah, which not only got her a son, only got her Shmuel, but ultimately, again, that tefillah, which serves as the paradigm. The, te, Hannah's tefillah is the paradigm, right? The paradigm for tefillah does not come from Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov. Timing maybe comes from Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov, but how we daven, the entire structure of Davining all comes from Hannah. So to be in that site where this broken woman, Uttered this spectacular prayer, nothing like it, absolutely nothing like it. So let's take a look at number eight because Tfilas Chana is also something very important which we're going to spend a lot of time on. So vihi Maras Nefesh. So remember again, without going into the whole story right now, you know the story of Chana. Chana is married to a man by the name of Elkanah, and Chana Chana doesn't have children. Chana doesn't have children. So, Vahim Maras Nefesh Al Hashem Ubachotivke. And Chana is heartbroken. Vati Vatom Hashem And now, in number eight, in number eight is her Tfilah. This is the Tfilah of Chana, which we don't have to get into right now because we're, we're going to focus on that more in coming Shiurim. Because again, how Chana Davin and what she Davin, again, serves as. But here's what's amazing. You see, Hannah's tefillah, if you look at it just on a basic level, is no different than the previous to It's what we call petitional prayer. Right? Petitional prayer, I need something. So it's no different than Yaakov saying, God, I need you to deliver me from, to deliver me from Esau. No different than Avram saying, God, I need you to deliver stone. No different than Yitzchak davening on behalf of his wife. What's unique about tefillah's chanah Was the Navi goes out of its way to tell us about how long it took? Right? Chan is coming to the Mishkan year after year after year. It was a saga. Right? Remember again, Yaakov Davids for deliverance, and what what happens? What happens? What happens? I don't want to spoil the story for you, but what happens? right? Next day, deliverance. Avram Davins for Stone. Now it's true. He's not successful, but he's told that it's not going to answer immediately. There's immediate response. Even Yitzchak and Rivka, right? There, there's an understanding that as soon as the intensity of prayer happened, they, or she was barren for a number of years, but as soon as the intensity began, the Tfilos were answered. Tfilos Chana is different because Tfilos Chana is a prolonged prayer that did not. Have a timely answer. A prolonged prayer that did not have a timely answer. And I want to show with you something amazing. There's a beautiful set of swam called Panini Halacha. There's a Rosh Hashivah in Eretz Yisrael, Rav Eliezer Malamid. Rav Malamid is the Rosh of the Yeshiva Tezder in Har Bracha, an incredible Talmud Chacham, and also an incredible Bal Halacha. See, so he wrote a whole series, a whole series on Halacha, and he happens to have called Pinini Halacha. And he happens to have an entire volume. He has one volume on tfila and a second volume titled Tfilas Nashim. tfilah for women. So a whole a whole volume on tfilah and a whole volume on tefila. And in his introduction, he says something so incredible. Take a look at number nine. He writes over here as follows. He says, Ashmul Hanavi omru shayashakul so listen to this. We have, it's actually today's daf, which is quite amazing. We say the U Shmuel Hanavi is compared in greatness to Moshe and to Aaron. Now that's a pretty big thing, right? So why is Shmuel like Moshe and Aaron? What did Moshe and Aaron accomplish, right? What, what was their essence? What did they do? Moshe and Aaron created the first stage of national identity, right? Moshe and Aaron take the Jews out of Mitzrayim, bring them to Harsinai, and it's really at Harsinai that our identity as a nation is solidified and concretized. Shmuel Hanavi took us to the next level because what happened under Shmuel Hanavi's leadership? We got our first king, who was Sheol, and then we got our second king, David, right? Again, linking back to last night's share. we spoke about the greatness of David Amalek, David, Malka, Meshicha, the father of the, not only of a dynastic monarchy, but the father of the Messianic line. Shmuel Hanavi was just like Moshe Aaron. Moshe Aaron took us from one stage, or really from... No national identity to the first stage of national development, and ultimately Shmuel takes us to the next stage of national development as well, ushers us in to the period of Davidic monarchy. So, look what Roma Malam says, and this is so beautiful. And remember, Shmuel Hanavi also paved the way for the Beisamikdosh. Because remember again, Mamish last night's year, who built the Beisamikdosh? Shlomo, Shlomo, right, part of the dynastic monarchy of David. Well who who enabled the dynastic Davidic monarchy to begin? It was Shmuel Hanavi. So look what Rav Malamit says. <laughs> because Shmuel was such an elevated and saintly neshama, Hayakasha lahorida <laughs> it was difficult to bring his soul down to this world. See, what Rav Malamed is saying is something that I think is absolutely incredible. Sometimes we daven for things, and we daven for incredibly important things. And sometimes the holier the thing we're davening for, the more difficult it is to get that prayer answered. See, what Rav Malamed is say, asking is, Chana, why does Chana have so much difficulty getting her prayer answered? Right? First of all, it's a natural prayer. It's a natural prayer. And again, Chana, and you see, by the way, the way the Navi describes Chana is pretty intense. right? Vihi maras nefesh. You know what maras nefesh means? How would you translate that? Maras nefesh? Bitter. But it's really depressed. It's depressed. The Navi describes a broken woman, which is fascinating because the Torah is filled with, the, or I should say Tanakh is filled with stories of women who struggled with fertility, right? The imos, but yet amazingly enough, often we'll find different reactions. Like remember again, Rachel has one type, like we spoke about two weeks ago, in our Tuesday night, right? Rachel has one reaction when it's dealing with infertility. Sarah has a different reaction, but we don't see maras nefesh. We don't see a bareness. We don't see a depression. But yet Chana has that. So broken. So Rav Malamed says, because Chana was destined to bring down a neshama that was going to forever change the course of the world. And that neshama was so holy that that neshama did not want to come down to this world. That neshama wanted to stay in the celestial sphere. It did not want to come down. And it had to be pulled down down. It had to be pulled. This is the struggle that's unfolding by Hannah. She so badly wants a child and she sees, she literally feels like, I don't understand. I'm not asking you for anything that crazy. I'm asking for the natural, normal things in life. So why won't you give it to me? And little does she understand the tug of war that is unfolding between heaven and earth. She wants this child but the celestial sphere is unwilling to let go of this saintly neshama. And by the way, it gives such a profound insight in general as to why all of the emos struggled with infertility. Right? You know, we often have this. We often have this statement that why did the emos struggle with childbearing? Because wants the tfilos of the righteous. I'm just going to be honest with you. I've always had incredible difficulty with that statement. Because What does that mean? Akhosh Baruch knows how much I love him. He knew how much Sari Emimu loved him, and Rivka, and Rachel, and Leah. Does he need to put them through that pain? Was that necessary? But you begin to see something else. You see, when you want something, and it's meaningful and holy... Understand that sometimes there is this tug of war between heaven and earth. And sometimes Shamaim was unwilling to let go of the Neshama of a Yitzchak Avinu. And Shamaim was unwilling to let go of the Neshama of a Yaakov Avinu. And Shamaim was unwilling to let go of the Neshamas of Yosef and Benyamin. And Shamaim was unwilling to let go of the Neshama of Shmuel. So, so says, so says Rabbi Allah something so beautiful. So again, so I'm just pointing, why, why am I pointing this out to you? Because what Chana represents, is a different level in petitional prayer. You see, again, all of our biblical examples of prayer are all petitional prayers. Someone needs something, someone's in crisis, they daven. And normally, the truth is, the way it works is, the tfilos are answered, at least in the stories we see. Hannah's unique, because Chana is a model where I'm asking, I'm asking, I'm asking, I'm asking, and I'm still not getting. So, so if Muhammad says, and we're going to talk about this, because all of us struggle with this, what's the hashkafa for unanswered tfilos? What's the hashkafa? Like, how do I reconcile myself with that? I believe in a God who loves me. And I believe that a Hashbar who wants me to be happy and wants me to have what I feel I need in order to be happy. And a lot of times I ask for things that seem to be like regular run-of-the-mill things that other people have, right? And not, not like big stuff. And I'm not getting it. I'm not getting it. So I want to believe Gamzul I want to believe there's always a plan. I want to believe, but it's hard. It's hard. We have to be honest with ourselves, right? Remember, one of the most important things in Yiddishkeit is honesty. Honesty, honesty, honesty. You don't have to put on the face of piety and pretend that everything is fine when it's not fine. When it's not fine, I don't understand why the things that I daven for, which seem to be regular, ordinary stuff, the regular brachas in life that everybody wants to enjoy, and so many do it, I don't have. And I don't understand why that is. So obviously... There are questions that remain unanswered. But what Malamid is highlighting over here is something amazing. That sometimes what I want is of such great significance that there could be literally a tug of war between heaven and earth. That it's not that Kachbarah doesn't want to give it to me, but that sometimes what I'm trying to draw down is so intense and so holy that Shemaim wants to keep it in the celestial sphere. But yet I so badly yearn to bring it down here. Isn't it incredible? You see, Hannah suffers through all of these years and she suffered. She suffered. And by the way, I just want to point out, you know, Hannah's story doesn't have like a happy ending. I mean, it has a happy ending. She has a son. But understand, she got that son with a very heavy price tag. She pledged that son to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Hannah did not raise her son. Eli HaKohen raised her son. She brought her son to the Mishkan at the age of three. And that's where he lived. That's where he lived. You know, the Navi points out that she would come to visit him, and she made him a me'il katan. Beautiful idea. She made him a coat. She made him a little coat. That, that was... It's, it's not a everyone lives happily ever after story. It's difficult. But it's just to understand that sometimes the things that we're davening for, there are tugs of war that happen that we don't understand. And Chana thinks all these years, why... Can't I go ahead and have the brachas that everyone around me has? And little did she realize that she was going to bring a neshama into this world that was forever going to change the trajectory of humanity. And it wasn't simple, because the celestial seer was unwilling to let go of that neshama. But she so badly wanted it. Now the amazing part is, you see the koach of a Jew. Who won the tug-of-war between heaven and earth? A woman. Right, a Jewish woman won the tug of war between heaven and earth, which is pretty amazing, which is pretty absolutely amazing. So, just to show you the koach that we have in our tefillah, so I'm just pointing out so we normally see petitional prayer, petitional prayer that's answered, and petitional prayer that takes a little bit of longer time. But what I want to conclude with for today is there is another form of prayer that is not petitional prayer. If you take a look at number 10, so again, Rav Melamed highlights this idea, and this is actually a concept that's found in the Zohar. He writes as follows. So he, he explains in his opening introduction here that again, people normally associate prayer with need. Why do I dive into HaKadosh parachu? Because I need something. And the more intense the need, the more intense prayer. Meaning I would venture to say that those of us who have experienced an acute need in life, and you dive in for that acute need, you dive in that crisis, and Baruch Hashem, the crisis passed, and life goes back to normal, this is going to sound strange, but there's a part of me that misses the crisis. Now, I don't really miss the crisis. What I miss is my connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu that I had in that crisis. Because in moments of crisis, I realized that, you know what? I can't do this. I cannot do this. I am totally and wholly reliant on God. There are circumstances beyond my control. And then again, and it literally, for any of us who have lived through crisis, you know you have that moment where you give yourself over to HaKadosh Baruch. Riban Shaolam, you've got this. You've got this because I'm out of answers. I'm out of strategies. I don't know what to do. I give myself over to you. And then Baruch Hashem, this resolution, <laughs> you go back to life as normal. You dab and dun, 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 and then you guys, wow. You know what? I miss I miss that I don't miss the crisis, but I miss what it was like to have that connection of feeling like I place myself in your hands. I place myself in your embrace. That's one type of tefillah, but there is another type. Look at number ten. So Rav Muhammad says, but there is a deeper hashkafah to tefillah, and the deeper hashkafah to tefillah is even when you don't need something let's say today let's say baruch hashem you're in a good place in life and you don't acutely need anything right everything the the big ticket items the big ticket items are cared for and today i don't there's no there's no acute crisis right now rav malamed says a thoughtful person always understands that there's always some level of existential crisis meaning that there's no such thing as being in an absolute state of completion. Even when my health is intact, my parnosa is good, family is good, I have good friends, and, and Israel is doing well, feeling, feeling and thoughtful people, people with incredible sensitivities what Rav Malamed is describing over here is almost a state of existential lacking existential lacking existential chisaron existential crisis I, what's wrong in your life? No, nothing's wrong in my life right? everything is perfect everything is as it should be but even people, who everything is as it should be, understand on a deeper level. On a deeper level, ultimately again, a fundamental lacking, which exists in my life. Yodim Because everyone knows, or actually thoughtful people know, that life has a gvul, life has a framework, life has a boundary. What does this mean? Even if everything is great, Yavo yom, Everybody dies. Everybody dies. So the notion, and we're going to end this here on a high note, right? Everyone dies. The, The notion that I die and the notion that I don't know how long I have in this world, by definition, always creates an existential lacking. Right? So I'm incomplete. I'm incomplete. You know why I'm incomplete on the most basic level? I don't control the most important thing in my life, which is, which is, my life right the duration of my existence i is, is isn't that the most important thing right how long am i going to live am i going to am i, am I going to reach this muscle i don't control that i don't control that now most of us don't live with that awareness because it's a heavy awareness to live with but thinking people do and they realize that if i'm zohra to live to old age right i'm going to die There's going to come a time where I'm going to be old and frail and then my body will stop and this life will come to an end. You see, a thinking person realizes that in life, nothing is ever stable. And nothing is ever complete. You see, most of us don't. I'll give you the Arizal has this idea. The Arizal says, Why do we cry by Simchus? Right? Why do we cry by Simchus? Right? Crying, crying is an emotional reaction that is associated with sadness. But yet, crying is such a common reaction. To happiness, to extreme. How do people go ahead? Most people, how do they relate? I say most people, many people. How do they relate to extreme happiness? Tears of joy. Why? You know what the Arizal says? Deep down the Neshama knows that even the moments of acute joy are fleeting. They're fleeting. You can't hold on to them. You can't bottle it. You can't save it. And so right now there is intense simcha. But you know the nature of the human condition? I literally have no idea what happens in the next moment. I literally, so says Ramallah is something amazing. You see, there are two different groups of people. There are people who kind of live life in the present, in the freeze frame. And you ask them, how are things? How are things? So again, what they'll say is, how are things? Well, okay, let me go through a checklist. Parnas is okay. Health is okay. Family's okay. Friends are good. Kalali is all thriving. Everything's great. I mean, good, good. And there's a second group of people for the thoughtful chavra. And the thoughtful chavra, you ask, how are things doing? By the way, generally, you shouldn't ask them how things are doing, right? But if you ask them, how are things doing? How are things doing? Well, Baruch Hashem, on a personal level, you know, the immediate needs are cared for. But there's so many unknowns in life. There are so many unknowns. What's going to happen to that mishpacha that's fine right now? What's going to happen to that paranasa that's fine right now? What's going to happen to the health that's intact right now? I'm having a simcha. But who knows what happens tomorrow? And who knows what happens to Cloud Israel? And life, the nature of the human condition, is this constant flux. You see, the great anomaly of life is the thing we crave most is... Okay, maybe not. Stability and predictability. That's what I want more than anything. right? I want to know what's going to happen, how it's going to happen. Right? Stability and predictability. And the one thing you cannot have in the human condition is... Stability and predictability. Isn't that the great anomaly of life? The things I want most are the very things that I cannot have. So most of us just ignore that. Just ignore that. But the thoughtful ones realize, you know what? Even when life is great, I want to point out, I'm not talking about personalities like there are some people who are always waiting for the shoe to drop. That's not what we're talking about over here. But a thoughtful person realizes that life is unpredictable. And life is unstable. And what's going to happen is totally unknown. So remember, the waiting for the other shoe to drop personality, that makes them generally cynical, jaded, and morose. What's the reaction of the thoughtful person? He or she gives themselves over into the hands of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. See, look at what Muhammad says, he says, Be'etzem, his kashrus last two lines. I'm sorry, last four lines. Omitoch, hachisar hazeh. You see, what do I do with this reality? What do I do with this with this recognition? That now life is so unpredictable, everything is unpredictable. Even if right now I could check every single box, everything can and often does change on a dime. So what do I do with that reality? So the thoughtful person is, like, I align myself with you. I put myself in your hands. Because if I do that, I recognize that A, Whatever change does happen is from you. And I also recognize that if I'm connected with you, I'll have the koach to weather whatever changes come my way. So this is a different model of prayer. Rav Mulamid ends He says, <laughs> So Rav essentially tells us is that there are two different models of prayer there's what we call petitional prayer. And what triggers petitional prayer? What triggers it? A need. A need. There's a problem. And again, I'm a balemuna, So I recognize I can't solve the problem on my own. I turn to HaKadosh Baruch Hu to help me with the problem. That's petitional prayer. But there's a higher... But the problem with petitional prayer is, okay, it's only if you need something. Well, if I don't need anything, Baruch Hashem. So right, maybe the simple answer is you always need something. But again, there's a higher level of prayer, what we'll call existential prayer. And existential prayer says, I realize I'm always in a state of flux. I'm always in a state of need because I recognize that as a human being, I am always chaser. I'm always deficient. Deficient how? Because I can't control anything in life. Right? It's not totally true, but you understand what I mean. I can't control my refuah, my parnasa, my mishbach. I can control my ruchmiah. So that's the one thing I can control. There's so many things I can't control. So because I can't control it, because I can't control it, I have a choice. Either I can give up, I can become dejected and morose, waiting for the other shoe to drop, or I could create a connection with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I could create a connection with He who does control everything. And even though I don't really need something right now, I'm good. I'm good. Baruch Hashem. Thank you, Hashem. I'm good. I'm good. But I'm going to align myself with you because you know that the nature of life is, life is full of twists and turns, ups and downs, all types of changes. So I'm not going to wait until I need something to connect with you. I'm going to proactively align myself with you. Create that dialogical connection. Create that relationship because I know the uncertainty of the human condition. And I know that if I proactively align myself with you, then hopefully that allows me to better weather those uncertainties. And when faced with those uncertainties, my relationship with you will give me the koach to overcome them. So two models of tefillah, petitional prayer and what we'll call proactive prayer. Both correct, both correct, again, we see, so if we bring this all together, it turns out that we see a machlokas, is tefillah biblical, is it rabbinic, rambam, ramban, everyone agreeing that tefillah as we have today, rabbinic, and again, a response to people unable to go ahead and articulate themselves. Two different forms of petition, or I should say, two different forms of prayer, but even within the first form of prayer, petitional prayer, there's petitional prayer with an immediate response, that's like the avos, and petitional prayer with a prolonged response, Chana. how do we relate to petitional prayer with a prolonged response? Because sometimes you don't realize that what we want is indeed so good and so beautiful and so holy that I'm locked in a tug of war with the heavens. But the good news is there is, nothing, there is no stronger force on the face of this earth than a Jew. And a Jew has the ability to win that tug of war between heaven and earth. Second model of prayer, proactive prayer. Everything is fine in my day-to-day life, but I'm in touch with the fragility and uncertainty of the human condition. And I am not going to wait for crisis to create a relationship. I'm going to be proactive in creating that relationship so that when crisis comes, which it always does, I will be ready to meet it head on. We'll stop over here for today. Meretz Hashem will continue with this series. I think our next year is December 9th. I believe something like that. Okay. Meretz Hashem will send out an email wishing everyone a wonderful day.